Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 24 of the Iga and Carlos Tennis Show. Um, as always, I'm your host, Funch, joined by Damien. And today, let's start actually by talking about Carlos Alcaraz, because he entered Rio. And we were all saying last week, both of us, that you know it was kind of an important event for him to you know, just show that he can win a, win a title on the ATP Tour again for the first time since Wimbledon. And as luck would have it, you know, this was this was a, a very unfortunate series of circumstances that happened to him when he stepped on the court this time around. Um, you know, only being able to play two games as he suffered through injury on the second point of the match, uh, which certainly is about as bad as it could could have got for for Alcaraz. So, what were your reactions? Yeah, I mean, two games is probably even a stretch because he kind of was able to only play two points, as he said later. Um, yeah, I mean, some some injuries, some uh, little problems are just unavoidable. Of course, ankle can be a very a very uh, sort of individual topic regard regarding the state, like the extent of it. The I think it's graded in like a few uh, categories. Um, you know, the type of the um, lesion or whatever that you got. Obviously, Alexander Zverev, for example, went out for six months through well, basically a similar injury. However, for Alcaraz, it seems like it's going to be much cleaner. And as you said, I mean, we were sort of hoping and uh, the Alcaraz fans especially that Rio was going to be like a return to title winning form for him. So this is kind of painful for him, 100%. However, as long as it doesn't impact his Indian Wells campaign, it's like almost nothing. If it impacts Indian Wells, yes, it's pretty big because this is one of the courts in the world where we are sort of expecting him to go huge, where we are expecting him to be a main contender for the title, sort of regardless of all that form question and regardless of the opponents, really. Uh, so, um, yeah, it would be very uh, painful for him if he had to skip Indian Wells because of that. If he might arrive there with a little less practice, which is also a thing, obviously. And um, he's basically like, you know, if you if you get an ankle injury like this, you're going to be out for like eight or nine days from practicing at least. So, um, well, it's probably going to be like this, that he plays the exhibition right that he has and basically with no practice. And then, of course, we know as a seed in Indian Wells, you kind of start like on Friday or Saturday. Right. So he should have a few good days of practicing in Indian Wells. Is it going to be enough for him to be a title-winning threat? Honestly, it's hard to say because it's kind of unprecedented as well, right? I mean, you, you rarely just play four days before an event and then you then you actually have to compete there. But then again, of course, his break was not that long. He was, he had a proper off-season earlier. I'd expect him to still be in the mix at Indian Wells, but, but yeah, mostly to me, like whether this injury actually... Um, sort of matters to Alcaraz's season and whether it actually has a large impact on it, it definitely um, will be the question of like how it affects his Indian Wells performance. Yeah, of course. And and of course, just to uh, describe it again, I mean, it was the second point of the match and he's playing Tiago Montero, lefty, and he is, I guess, trying to change directions when this happened. I'm trying to remember exactly how this but actually uh, unfolded and he was, I think, running towards his backhand and then he just sort of rolled it, right? And then immediately it was one of those where you just sort of knew like he's probably not going to be able to continue and actually broke serve in that game. So, but then you could see on the change of ends when his foot was heavily strapped with a ton of tape, you know, it was, 
it seemed like uh, the writing was on the wall right then. Yeah, it uh, was, was swollen and, tested, and uh, yeah, you know, on on his serve, and immediately you could tell the movement was not even you know twenty percent of what it he would need it to be. So then, uh, then I mean, he called it off. I think fairly immediately, which I guess is smart because you don't want to be playing on an injury like this and further damaging it. And we got news later that it was a that after he had an MRI, it was a grade two tear. I think it was a grade two lateral sprain is what he described it on his uh, social media. So it looks like he's going to be back in time for the Las Vegas exhibition with Nadal, the Netflix slam or whatever it's called, you know, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we'll see, uh, you know, what how the, how he looks there. Uh, Nadal is also coming into that with a bit of a question mark as well. So uh, I think for both guys, it'll be kind of one to just check out just for form, I guess. Not that it really matters in terms of the... <laughs> you know, I guess, result and sort of the larger picture of it. I mean, it is going to be on Netflix, so maybe that is, you know, just something that will get more casual fans to have eyes on it, I would think. But uh, yeah, as far as Indian Wells, I'm kind of in the same boat. He'd still be in the mix as far as one of the favorites, but um, as far as, uh, yeah, winning a, winning a title, it's obviously hard to do that with very, very less practice. Um, but we did, we did actually see him in Rio uh, for the semis. Because they they showed him in the crowd actually when Baez was playing Surando, so he was still there in Rio and seemingly not obviously not practicing, but just um, yeah, just staying there a little longer. So yeah, just watching yeah. Franz Surando throw out thirty backhands in the second set. But um, yeah, I, I I think when it comes to the exhibition, it's definitely going to be less meaningful to me, even less meaningful to me than the Djokovic one before the season. Because with Nadal, they haven't like fully developed their rivalry. They never really got to that point. Yeah. So I I don't think either guy will be as you know just keen on beating the other. So I would expect mm. the tennis to be like a little more off key and just sort of yeah. It's it's gonna be practice for both guys. I I, I think we can pretty much say that. Uh, personally, I'm I definitely am not going to watch it. I do not give a damn in the world about the exhibition uh, between him and Nadal. However, if they play on tour, that would be cool, of course, one more time. And um, yeah, it's all it's all going to be about like how much practice and how much rhythm he can actually grab before Indian Wells. And um, yeah, it would be a shame if if that campaign is affected because obviously, yeah, as we said, as we've said many times before, this is a court that kind of plays like a clay court, despite a hard court, despite being a hard court, which is a very good profile for Alcaraz, given that you know sometimes clay is a little too slow for him, sometimes hard courts are a little too fast for him, and some, a bouncy one in the desert. Yeah, that's that's basically as good as it gets. So I I am I am expecting him to pick up a lot of Indian Wells titles over the course of his career. And uh will 2024 be another one? We're gonna have to wait and see. Yeah, of course. The conditions there, of course, it's it's a, it's very different compared to most courts on on tour, right? Because it's like incredibly like the ball travels so fast through the air, but then it's it's a very slow gritty court and it also you also have like the high bounce as well so i think it's like kind of perfect for alcaraz because it gives him the time to you know i guess show off his amazing athleticism and explosive game that we were used to seeing and then yeah like the way he won it last year without dropping a set uh and of course the clinic that he put on in the final i mean that that is uh one of his standout performances of course of of, of last season so 
let's hope he is uh, in decent shape for this campaign, uh, as good as he could possibly be. And then we'll see, of course, what the draw is like. And I guess we'll further project from there. But anything else to add about Alcaraz uh, before we move on, perhaps? Yeah, not really. I mean, as you mentioned, he won Indian Wells last year without dropping a set and beat Sinner and Medvedev back-to-back, right? So you could imagine that a similar kind of effort would be required to, to pick up the title this year, given where Sinner is right now, given where Daniel will going to see, but, but like still, we expect him to be one of the main contenders. But also, Novak Djokovic is back in Indian Wells, which does matter a great deal too. I mean, Alcaraz is going to be the second seat for that. Uh, so he's not gonna be. Uh, he's not gonna have to face Novak until the final. But you know, it, it is a potential final lineup anyway. So uh, pretty much, uh, it 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 is expected that you could have to. Uh, y- well, you might have to get through Sinner or Medvedev and then Djokovic to pick up the title. So basically, a uh, pretty similar effort to last year will have to be uh, presented. And um, and yeah, really, that's all I have. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I also just realized also, of course, last year he injured his um, hamstring in, in that final against Nori. So yeah, he does sort of have experience recovering from an, from an injury in Rio and then, you know, bouncing back in Indian Wells. As you said, he's probably going to play that Friday or Saturday of when the tournament starts. So that still gives him a, a good solid 12 days from now as we're recording the podcast. Um, But with that... Also, we had Igor Shriantek playing in, in Dubai, trying to do the Doha-Dubai double, which I don't think has been done on tour since 2007 when Justina Anand did it. Uh, so, uh, you know, certainly this, we, we were talking about this last time, but it was Sabalenka and Rabakina on the other half. Igor on this half, we were talking about potential, you know, matchup against Ostapenko in the semis, you know, maybe it'll be Goff. And this is, this is a, a draw that really kind of fell apart. Uh, as far as the top four seeds go, we had Sabalenka losing early to Donna Vekic. Rubakina was fully uh, exhausted from her campaign in Abu Dhabi and, and Doha and didn't get to play her quarterfinal match, pulled out because of a sickness. And then, you know, you had Goff losing to Kalinskaya. But, you know, I guess what an amazing run for Kalinskaya to beat three top 10 players along the way. But I guess the match we're going to be focusing on is the semifinal loss, right? I guess to Kalinskaya four and four. After what seemed to be a really good week for Iga, you know, getting through Svitolina, I definitely thought Svitolina would possess uh, some serious challenges, especially after Wimbledon, right? And given that she had won twice in Dubai before, I felt like she was going to be a uh, a threat with sort of her flat forehand and, you know, the more offensive version of like post-motherhood Svitolina that we know, right? So I guess that didn't quite, you know, Panon Iga was able to really defend and uh, you know, play super well in that match in basically all departments. And she was tested a bit more in the second set, but came through. But then in that Kalinskaya match, she goes up 4-2. And then after that, it gets really sort of ugly for her, right? She loses the next six games and kind of her timing just completely goes away. The intensity was not really there. The same problems that we're used to be seeing, you know, with the absorbing the flat hitters, uh, it, it seemed to be more of a problem. And she seemed to get very frustrated as well, you know, with we kind of saw a rare emotion from her throwing her racket as as well, which I guess is fine because actually I think after that she started to, you know, play a bit better towards the end and even got from from four six to five. I think you know two match points from there. It was she almost got it back to five all. So from there, I guess from the double breakdown, you could say you know finally something started to work better for her. But I just don't think she played up to her standards overall in the whole match. And Kaunskaya is a very good enough opponent that she could take advantage of all that. So. 
what was your sort of take on how the match went? Yeah, I'll start with a random note as um, recently I was thinking about because we're calling Svitolina post-pregnancy, post-motherhood. We should probably start calling, uh, calling it Monfils, you know, post-fatherhood, post-insemination. But anyway, uh, <laughs> when it comes to Świątek, yeah, I think for the whole week uh, she still played very well. So I was kind of surprised with how quickly it fell apart, you know, against Kaniskaya. Because 4-4-2, uh, to get that break, she actually plays like this sensational defensive point and, you know, she's returning everything back. She's sprinting from corner to corner, sliding into it. Of course, the pace, the, the flatter trajectory of Kalinskaya's shots is not really bothering her. And then she finds these two double faults, I think, in the next game. Also at the next break that she lost. So at 4-all, she commits like a couple of very routine forehand errors or maybe one was a backhand one, but basically on the plus one shot, she kind of has the open court. Yeah, she kind of has the open court because Kaniskaya goes the other way and she just misses a sort of a routine put away. On at 4-2, she commits two double faults and one more error. So so just randomly out of, after the first six games, which are once again played at a, at a very high level, she goes away for, let's say, four games or so. And I guess the main thing you kind of have to you know not like about this performance is the way that she didn't really fight back until 2-5, right? that she was so frustrated. Of course, Kalinskaya causing some of that frustration, absolutely. I have a lot of respect for Kalinskaya, always have, and sort of just thought that she's a you know an underrated ball striker and uh, definitely the type of ball striking that I enjoy as well with how early she takes the ball. But on the Dubai courts, of course, it is effective too. And um, all in all, you know, you still have to credit her, but um, yeah, it, it just wasn't a spotless performance. It wasn't a performance that uh, could have allowed her to pick up this title, even with the draw, as you said, kind of opening up. I mean, we said it last time that um, if Świątek, Rybakina and Sabalenka lose, this title can be won by literally anyone. Jasmine Paulini maybe is not literally anyone yet. However, it's kind of on the sort of more unexpected side of WTA 1000 winners, for sure. Kalinskaya probably would have been a little less to me, despite being, you know, lower ranked and despite maybe having less consistency at the top, just because of a more explosive ceiling. Of course, Kalinskaya was also in the position to win. it. Maybe some of what we saw in the final was already there in the semis in the second set. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just more of Iga not being... I guess, comfortable enough on the court and comfortable with Kalinskaya's pace to defend effectively, to uh, basically at some point just start hitting the ball as hard as she can and and uh, not really having any more the control over her ground strokes to to follow it up. But yeah, the, 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 the way she uh, sort of just completely lost it in that match from 4-2 was a little too surprising to me because up until 4-2, it just felt like the entire week where she is just, despite the court, despite the court being maybe not to her liking in general, she is just playing well enough to overwhelm the other players anyway. And perhaps, you know, we've talked about this in regards to the uh, Beijing, to the Beijing run, that playing Sara Soribes-Tormo in the opening round gave her a lot of good rhythm. I think here the two hours against Sloane Stevens were also really good for her. The, the way that she was just able to well, hit a lot of balls as you have to against Sloan and just spend two hours on the court in a competitive setting. And then after that, we have the matches against Svitolina and of course against, uh, yeah, I'm not forgetting who she played. <laughs> I, I... Uh, Sloan Stevens, Svitolina and then Jingwen Zhang. Yeah, uh, Kinwen Zhang again, of course. Yeah, and, and both of these matches were really good. She was serving extremely well too, like using the uh, quick conditions to her advantage. I think against Kinwen, she wasn't broken, of course. 
so it was a 6-3-6 to very clean win. And basically, um, I I think that some of that was the timing from the Stevens match, like the way she was able to play herself into the right groove on the court. So I was definitely uh, surprised to see it just go away like this at 4-2 over Kalinskaya. Yeah, yeah I, I was surprised at how long it uh, lingered, like for those six games yeah. after 4-2, because I thought, you know, okay, it's for all we've seen this before. Now we see Iga perhaps, you know, not overhead in this game but then it, it it kind of spiraled out of control a bit too long uh, i think and then it was sort of just too late and i didn't feel like the intensity was was really fully there you know at the, at the very end and so i think some of that could be fatigue don't you think yeah. from even even the whole week last week and the Rebakina matches spell was two and a half hours long in the final and then plus just the exhaustion and then probably also just a little bit the pressure just knowing like you know you have this is like a very winnable title now because of all the names that fell, but also Kalinskaya's, you know, I've always thought she's underranked. I watched her play against Rabakina. All of the matches that they had last year, she took out Rabakina in Madrid, played a very tight one against her in Miami. And I always thought she was very underranked and injuries just kind of got in the way of her being a top 30 player. And I, I think this is just like long overdue. And I actually was expecting her to win the final over Paulini as well. But then, you know, 5-3 up, she kind of plays the worst four games that she could possibly play from 5-3. And of course, Paulini was just like such an incredible fighter and just the intensity was just so good for her at the end. But like, yeah, uh, this is this is one of those uh, sort of not ideal days at the office because you also had that four, you also had the two break points that she missed at um, the second time around when uh, Kanskaya served for it at 5-4. And I think she got a little too trigger happy on some of those returns. And, uh, you know, maybe potentially after that, the match looks very different. Who knows if she finds the energy from there? That's still a bit of a question. I don't think it's like a hardcore, you know, what if moment just because, you know, she could easily get broken in the next game. Like there's just no, I, I didn't feel like super confident in her level throughout that match after 4-2 to, to make me think like, oh, she could have definitely turned it around. So, um, yeah, it was just it was just sort of one of those days you have to accept Still number three in the race. Still, uh, you know, picked up a 1,000 last week. Still got 500 points on the United Cup. And then you sort of have these two randomish losses to Nashkova and, and Kalinskaya. Although, you know, I guess... This one is less, I guess, you know. It's it's a semi-final anyway, right? Um, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think there's really no harm done here. Absolutely. Uh, of course, she didn't get that double, but it's only really a stat that, you know, people made up. No one actually cares about that. I hope she doesn't care about that, at least, because sometimes she has kind of hinted that she might, you know, at some on some of these, like the Doha repeat, right? But um, as a whole, I think this is absolutely fine also because Indian Wells is coming up. Like, she she absolutely did enough in the Doha-Dubai swing. Like, this is, this is literally, you know what she uh, wanted, what she expected, a title and a good run in the other. I think it's absolutely fine. And um, yeah, when it comes to just that um, that semi, definitely I, I didn't feel like if, if we get to 5 all, it's guaranteed either. Just because, well, from that point onwards, even if you get it to a third set, I mean, in tennis, you still need to win six games suddenly, right? Like if, yep. if, if, if you get it to a third set. So actually starting the set with the sort of lesser uh, lower intensity that she was on at the time i don't know if she she had six more games in there but but yeah obviously you mentioned fatigue which is may, maybe wasn't like this fully apparent 
but it is natural, you know, both mental and physical fatigue, despite her winning all her matches in straights up until that point. Um, but yeah, basically, if it, they're the only the only real sort of surprise there, I think, was the four two lead and how up until that point everything just looked fully according to plan, and then basically a few. Uh, a few uh, simple errors right away in the two service games that came after that. And uh, that's kind of how the match was was done, which um, maybe that was a little surprising. But all in all, yeah, it's still an excellent fortnight for her, obviously. Uh, she still hasn't won Dubai. Well, she's going to be among the main favorites, you know, anytime she plays, but not obviously, not, not like in Doha, not like in Indian Wells, where we are sort of just expecting her to be better on the competition, sort of regardless who it is. Whereas in Dubai, it's, uh, you know, let's see who, who she plays. And again, yeah, the, the flatter hitters can be dangerous. Then again, of course, she played a couple of very, um, let's say, forceful opponents. And as you said, I was also expecting her to struggle against Svitolina a bit more. Um, Svitolina really didn't threaten that much in the in that um, encounter. I mean, in the second set, it was, of course, much closer. But Svitolina kept, yeah. like, not being able to uh, consolidate when she when she broke. And there were a few leads as well. In I think she lost on serve in the second set, somewhat like maybe you know Alexandrova on on return in Doha. So you could definitely say that Iga was clutch in, in both of these encounters. Then against Zhengye, it was just a straight up clinic. She she kind of didn't put a foot wrong the entire match. And that's also theoretically an opponent who could on on quicker courts trouble her. Um, but but yeah, she just was never really close to Iga on the day. So it's not like she didn't handle any aggressive flatter hitters up until the semi, right? So um, I was I was not in that camp because some people I I, I know that saw, said that oh it's just yet another loss for her against a player like this. But you know the tennis that she played until four two and also the the previous matches kind of tell you that uh, well she had that win in her somewhere, but. Um, on that day, it just didn't really come to be. Yeah. I also think sometimes, you know, there is a point where we, because she wins her matches so easily, uh, we sort of just underestimate the sort of mental focus that that takes, you know what I mean? Like, that's that mental point-in, point-out focus that she has. At some point, I could just imagine there being a time after, like, eight, nine days of winning matches in a row where you're just... Hmm. You know, you just lose your focus for a little bit and then it just spirals because you've just put so much intensity and focus and uh, effort into building up that aura. And then afterwards, you just and just building up that uh, insane, you know, expectations that like it's just going to continue the way it did. And then, you know, you just it just doesn't take much is what I'm saying. It just takes a drop off of the slightest. And then I think. You have a player like Kaunskaya who's playing so accurate, so precisely, and just like, you know, playing very safe as well. It feels very repeatable, the kind of tennis that she's playing, especially on these courts where it's just so fast and the ball just gets so low and she gets so much purchase out of her flat ground strokes. And she kind of has decent weapons. Like, they're not weapons that blow you away like a Sabalenka or a Bakina, but they're, you know, they're good enough that they ask Chiantek to be fully 100% there and if she's she's not then on these courts it could be a could be a problem but yeah uh, I, I sort of just look at Indian Wells as a, just a fresh neo clean slate and then you know just more of the same really and this is one of the better courts for her Indian Wells in terms of in terms of the clays 
slash nature of it, just like it is with Carlos. Um, there's not really that much more to it, uh, because I guess uh, I guess the bigger question is more like the other one thousands that are faster, like Cincinnati, Miami. Last year was pretty quick. Um, yeah, maybe 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 just the ones that she hasn't won yet, really. Yeah, I mean, Indian Wells, we definitely expect her to be in the mix. Of course, she won in 2022, and it was part of that massive win streak. She lost in the semifinals in 2023 to Rybakina. That was the rib injury. I don't know how impactful that was. Maybe Rybakina wins anyway, but probably she does, given you know that she was in, in pretty amazing form there. But all in all, I mean, she's just beaten Rybakina in Doha, so she should have her chances. I, I agree with what she said about Kalinskaya. I mean, to me, um, she kind of gets everything out of her timing you know she gets she gets the weapons to a point where they are actually not less threatening than some of the other players who maybe rely on the just the strength coming from the arms more and um obviously this is maybe gonna stop her from i don't know being like a major contender for titles in some other conditions maybe when it's slower maybe when it's not as easy to take it early but it's not like she hasn't even been good on clay so you know she's she's definitely capable anywhere and um that's that's an opponent last year and that was yeah, a yeah, good yeah. she had she had a very good spring actually uh, uh when after after the clay season then she was out for like three months with an injury so you know Kalinska's ranking could definitely get into like the top 20 this year or something like that because um she still has three months where she didn't gain, gain any points and of course she is in the top 10 currently in the race already uh at mm-hmm. uh, 12,000 12,000 points uh, 12,000 1200 points um, but so yeah, I mean, this is definitely an opponent that can bother Iga on these courts. We didn't, we we for the first six games, we sort of like so. Uh, what happens when she's when Iga is playing focused and how the dynamic works then? But after that, yeah, that concentration went away. It was tough. Um, it's an interesting point you mentioned about like the the all the easy winning that she does because indeed she's like not kind of. Like she's never BSing her way through matches, you know, even when she plays someone in the opening yeah. round, um, I don't know, let's say like a Claire Liu, you know, it's happened a few times or something like that. Here, of course, it was a different case because Sloan actually gave her a very tough match, but sometimes she's winning all of these matches 6-1, 6-1. There's not going to be like any let off. Yeah, she's she's just out there competing for every point, every game. And um, I'm not saying she should be like maybe less focused in the opening rounds yeah. or should be giving her opponents more games. Definitely not. However, uh, yeah, I, I can understand how maybe a lot of the time Iga's runs are like, so she wins, you know, eight great matches in a row, usually very quick victories. And then it all comes crashing down like very quickly because maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. it's just hard to uh, to recover from something like that. I guess it's just something that she's going to have to sort of learn how to manage over the course of her career because, again, yeah. it's it, it would be unrealistic to sort of ask her to be less focused in the early rounds. No, that's not going to happen. I don't think happen. you can be more focused than, than how she is. Like, it's just... And then and then how you how do you calibrate that when all of a sudden, like, now you're... You've lost five, six games in a row. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why it's impossible. Is it you? Is it your opponent? Is it like, it must be so overwhelming in that moment just because you're not used to it. Like it's, (laughs) there's very few, I think like Nick, one of our friends from Talking Tennis, he has the, he had the poll up about like, are, is every single match that Ego plays essentially on his racket, right? Uh, And then, then I think most of the responses were like, no, not really, but like most of them are, right? Like, you know, most of the opponents that she faces, it is kind of, more, you know, when she's in that zone where she's just fully focused and so intense. There's not really much most opponents can do, but then there are just a select few. 
yeah where that comes into play yeah we've been talking about her records against like players ranked outside the top 50 right i mean you just sort of have to have a certain elite standard to to trouble her and you kind of have to take the racket out of her hands as well like it's it's pretty impossible to beat Shvontek while not pressuring her i mean it, it it really hasn't been done in a while if you if you look at all of these losses i mean kalinskaya noshkova uh, Kudermetova, Ostapenko, you know, we've got Pegula and Goff in Cincinnati and Montreal, but even they were fighting back. And, you know, Goff, of course, is probably, well, probably the fastest player on the planet. If not the best defenders, that might be still, uh, you know, especially on the slower record, that might be a rivalry of Iga. But like a lot of them, even when Svitolina beats her, Svitolina is actually aggressive. You've got Rybakina, Sabalenka, uh, even Krejcikova. You know, you, you really don't get players who just sort of gave Iga the ball and told her, Okay, let me uh, let me see what you do with it. I mean, Alize Cornet is probably the last loss that Iga had like this, right, at Wimbledon. But that was, of course, also after the the thirty seven match win streak, where she kind of well, both were was still um, not really a threat on the grass at the time, but also just really needed a a bit of a break after all that yeah. all the winning that she did. So um, I mean, it does kind of show you that um, there are certain opponents who just don't touch her. Like sometimes you just see who she drawn in the opening round. You see that it's a player who like won't really step out of her comfort zone, who doesn't have the weapons. And then usually that match is just over very quickly. I guess to um, to kind of uh, counteract that, we can say that there aren't that many players right now on the WTA tour like that. Like there's actually a lot of heavy hitters. And this year, you know, Iga hasn't really played opponents like this, I, I guess, who wouldn't like in any way threaten her. But anyway, she's 14-2 for the year. I mean, so uh, despite sort of losing in the first round, in the third round of the Australian Open, I mean, if we if we just imagine that she loses in the, well, we don't have to imagine she lost in the third round of the Australian Open. But like taking that into consideration, it's kind of been the best season she can get so far with an Australian Open third round loss. Yeah, I mean, if she had won this, she would have been on top of the race. And then all of a sudden you're looking at since October. I mean, even now you're looking at it since October, she's 25 and two. Exactly. Basically, you know, since the start of Beijing. So, you know, that's like in some ways, I mean, you because of the third round of the Australian Open, we kind of just forgot. Like everyone was like, oh, Sabalenka is the best player in the world after the Australian Open. But then and then all of a sudden you wins this and then she wins. She comes close to winning Dubai and. You know she's still like not that far off in the race, so it's like, yeah, twenty-five and two since the start of Beijing, and you almost want to think back to the thirty-seven match win streak that she had in twenty twenty-two, and I, I just think the field is a lot more stronger than it was back then. So to win twenty-five out of twenty-seven now, you know, is still still pretty heck of an achievement, even though it's not, you know you have a couple losses in there, but you just sort of treat every match the same, like Elo or Tennis Abstract does. You know, then, yeah, you're looking. You're looking at still a pretty big, like ninety percent win percentage. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, twenty-five and two is insane. Um, I think that when she won the thirty-seven matches in a row, the tour was a little weaker. I mean, of course, slow clay was was going to be dominant for her either way. But like Sabalenka, when she played her in Rome and Stuttgart back to back, was definitely not the threat she is right now. You know, in Miami, she was playing like Sakari in the final. So Indian was she was playing Sakari in the final, right? Kontavate in the final of Doha, Sakari in the in the semis of Doha, Sabalenka as well Doha in Doha. Run looking back is is pretty impressive. The Sabalenka performance, I think the quarterfinal over Sabalenka. 
Well, I have very little mm -hmm. recollection of it, to, to be honest. Like, yeah. I, I don't really, I can't really separate it in my head from all the other Doha performances. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, there's there's so many of those. Like, it, it's, just, it's just really 2022 Doha is like one match for me right now. Right. And I'm not saying it's one individual match, but like a, was, a combination of these five. That was really a strange time because so many people, like, after Bardi retired, you mm -hmm. know, they were like, oh, you know, Iga just got to number one because of the retirement. But then after that, then she just... She ended these talks very quickly, for yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> it was done, like, immediately. It was like, okay, yeah, now you're number one. Like, now you've just won another 20 matches, so... Yeah, she she was very far off number one, definitely. It it it's you know after Bar after Barty retired, it definitely felt like I mean she was number two and basically she gets promoted there, but that yeah. ended with literally like the first two or three events. So, uh, <laughs> she really didn't take a while to to really make it clear that she is the number one and that she is the number one for a reason. And uh, as you said, right now, I mean, even if she wins this title, she could have been number one in the race, which is pretty insane. I mean, they are very close on points. Sabalen, Karibakina, Świątek. I think it's natural. I saw a tweet from this week from, I think maybe it was Gil who posted that about like, you know, slums really creating all the narratives and how people kind of mm -hmm. acted after the Australian Open, like Świątek is, I don't know, done or like not close to Sabalenka. Obviously, we were sort of yeah. uh, maybe going about it a little different way and saying that just, well, on the in these conditions, she didn't have a chance at winning the title. But, but you know, let's see her on the next events and she's probably going to be like, um, yeah, it's going to be a better indicator simply of what's to come in 2024. And um, I'm just trying to say that it's natural that slums determine our narratives that they determine how we perceive the form of tennis players for the most part because they are the most important events it is slightly different for Iga so far because she still kind of hasn't figured out mo well three of the four or, or two of the four slams given she has the US Open title so it is slightly different for, for Iga so far I think and we probably shouldn't be looking at the slams as the only in the, uh, as the only indicator, although of course in the sort of let's say in the future it would be amazing for her to actually start being a regular threat at Wimbledon and at the Australian Open as well. Sabalenka probably is the player where it's actually different, right? Because she's been so focused on the majors the last couple of years and six semifinals in uh, in a row. So basically for Arena probably uh, that's actually like, you know, what only thing that people are looking at is like the slums and the performances at the slums, which also is a, you know, is a great achievement for her to sort of yeah. be able to to get that form going before every major and uh, yeah, get to six semifinals in a row. It's definitely quite insane. Yeah, for sure. You was looking to figure that out and the majors, the hard court ones, uh especially Australia and also Wimbledon, but uh, also a lot of it is draw dependent when you get to, when you get down to it, I mean, you just compare the draws in Australia and you just look at the sort of draw she got there and, you know, versus maybe in some of her other first weeks where we basically don't even, you know, pay that much attention closely to analyzing her matches in the first three rounds because she's just so dominant versus this time where it was just gauntlet after gauntlet of tough opposition. Yeah. But yeah, so there is there's that as well. But of course, you know, the next Grand Slam is Roland Garros, so we don't really have to, you know. We don't have to look at the draw there. I mean, the, the Roland Garros draw preview is just going to be, okay, Shvantec is the favorite. Let's see how she handles the pressure. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally that's going to be it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then and then of course Indian Wells, 
yeah, I mean, we'll just we'll just see what the draw looks like there, just like for Alcaraz, and then we'll uh, it'll it, you know these are gonna feel more like stems just with the two weeks, and for the WTA, there's really not that much difference right now when it comes to uh, these events, like twelve day events. The only difference is just you know ninety six player draw versus hundred twenty eight really. Everything else is the the same kind of tempo. You just have to win. Like Iga will have to win six matches versus seven at majors, and yeah. now that's going to be true for yeah. In one, it, it's one round less, and it, it it's really not that big a deal. I mean, it is a big deal in terms of how pe- players view it, how the fans view it, how the media views it, but but in terms of just like the actual body of work and the tough, uh, let's say how tough it is, yeah, definitely no difference. And by the way, oh, uh, let me make a prediction, which isn't even that bold. Iga will have more mode, the most WTA thousand titles uh, in history. Oh, yeah, just because yeah. there are so many of them, and also there are so many of them that Suter, I don't really see how that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the only question is like, does she play all ten every year? <laughs> because she like, could you skip, know, she you know, could... one or two. Uh, pr- yeah, preferably like the, the ones that the U.S. Open, the one after the U.S. Open is probably yeah. the one that you know she's going to skip, and then. You know, then probably goes to Beijing, but sometimes maybe you know, maybe in the future we we'll see her like skipping Miami after winning Indian Wells. I don't know, it is possible. Um, but but basically, yeah, she could also skip events after she's won the the previous one, right? So for example, let's say she wins Canada, she might not play Cincy. She's she has actually skipped Rome before, right? After winning Madrid and Stuttgart, so so I think that's uh, probably also a, a thing. Like if she wins an event, there might be a chance that she skips the next one. Yeah. Or you mean she skipped Madrid and played Rome? Oh, Madrid and played Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. Okay. Uh, obviously, yeah. But that, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, that was the same year that Alcaraz kept Rome. And yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that's precisely why I made that uh, mistake. Yes. <laughs> because that's, that's yeah, what that's you usually saw from players. Like, usually players would win Madrid and skip Rome rather than the other way around. Uh, yeah. but um, but yeah, Shiontek actually pulled it off uh, in the opposite manner. It used to be that Madrid would be after Rome, and then uh, yeah, but that's like Rome you know, before I started years. watching pretty much, I mean, yeah. back in the 2000s, mm. so yeah, and also this like 1000s thing, I feel like is it's definitely bigger now in this de- in this decade and the last couple of years um in terms of like actually that we're looking at this as a goal which i don't think you know like let's say serena was not targeting this for instance oh definitely not that's why she has the the same amount of titles right despite being you know sort of in the same boat but yeah even on both sides for like 15 years so there's there's that she boycotted the indian world event she barely ever played after the u.s open so i just want to throw that out there because i did see a lot of comments you know saying that you know how could you compare them you know that she didn't really have this as a goal but yeah, no, I mean it is it is a good point. So, no, yeah, I mean she 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 just never focused on it, which is why she has yeah. the same amount of titles despite there being a lot more WTA thousand events. And it used to be like this in the past. Yeah, players wouldn't really care about the thousands all that much. And also on the men's side as well, like you know some of these Very former similar, greats, yeah. right? You some of these former greats who have like a billion of some well a billion, you no know, one has billion of some titles, but let's say like Pete Sampras, how many Masters thousand titles does he has? Yeah. Or of course it wasn't 11, a Masters. But that's thousand usually not yet. a knock yeah. on his resume. You know, that's usually it's not. something we look at. No, uh, it, it's not at all because that was just not... that was just very different in the past. Like no one actually cared about these events that much. It was all about the majors. Yeah. 
And uh, obviously for Pete, it wasn't ATP thousands yet, but it was still like, you know, masters events or whatever, super nine or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah. But actually, that's why I don't think, you know, we've had a WTA player in, in history even complete the full set because they haven't even been, you know, in that, like, let's say category of one thousands or they've been just, they've changed their name so many times. It's been like, you know, tier one. Like yeah, and on the WTA, there were these, yeah, 900, 1,000 descript, the, the, yeah, the, the differences, right? It was like Premier 5 and Premier Mandatory. I never knew which right. one. And it, some which had 900, some had 1,000, and it was just like, exactly, yeah. all over the place. Like, I still don't even remember which were 1,000, which were 900. Uh, me neither. I mean, one of Madrid Rome, I think it was like differing. One was the Premier 5, one was the Premier Mandatory, yeah, but I don't remember which one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then you still had you had like the Dubai Doha flip where it was like five hundred one thousand, yeah. and it would just alternate every year, and that was just confusing. Along with the Montreal Cincinnati, that was already always a confusing one. But them alternating with the ATP, but anyway, yeah, I definitely agree that uh, you know she has a good chance to get the most one thousands ever. Just the amount that she's playing and winning and the rate and everything. And yeah, I think. That's really about all we have for you guys this week um, in terms of Iga and Carlos. Of course, the Carlos segment was always going to be shorter just given that he only played two games. So, yeah, uh, I guess we will see what Indian Wells and the clay court season looks like for these two and they should do well there. So, Yeah, especially Indian Wells, I think kind of regardless of the draw, Sviantek will be the main favorite. I don't, re- I can't really imagine a draw where she's not the top favorite. I don't think it's going to be an edge quite like, you know, Ron Garros or something like that last year, but she's going to be the top favorite, like kind of regardless of where she lands, I think. And for Alcaraz, yeah, I mean, it's going to be more like how much practice does he get? How, you know, is he going to get back into the rhythm? So for Alcaraz, I'm not saying the same, no. And yeah, uh, so with that, that is episode 24 for you guys. Um, bit on the shorter side, like we like we already mentioned, but we'll be back with more episodes during the Sunshine Swing and during the clay court season. There'll be plenty more to talk about with these two, as there always is. And as a result of these two, we get to cover both the tours. So it's a win-win there, as always. <laughs> and of course, yeah, thanks to all the listeners and the comments. And of course... Uh, you know, follow the Twitter page if you haven't already. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, all that jazz. Uh, leave us a review. That always helps us out. And yeah, thanks as always. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks.